happy. Me too. Congratulations. The course of your relationship will be monitored closely by our staff and by me personally. If you encounter any problems, any tensions, any arguing that you cannot resolve yourselves, you will be assigned children. That usually helps a lot. <laughs> and welcome to the Sun Cinema Podcast, a weekly radio show that examines the highs and lows of the medium of film through the filtered lens of Washington, D.C.'s only privately owned art house cinema. I'm your host, Jason Cauley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts and the proprietors of Sun Cinema, as always, Ryan and Dave. Gentlemen. Yo. Yo, Jason. So, just heard a, an intro from uh, The Lobster. Yeah, that was uh, Olivia Coleman, uh, Oscar Oscar fave. nominee, yeah. Yeah. From uh, a different Yargos Lothamos film. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of teasing that we're just going to talk about Yorgos Lanthimos today. Um, we're finishing up Janimals, January, at yeah. Suns, the theater that we have. I don't know who listens to this, like, repeatedly, or who's just, like, stumbling across the internet and stumbles onto our podcast. Well, if they're stumbling across it, they probably listen once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got it. <laughs> we get the point. But yeah, so we've been doing animal-themed movies this month, and conveniently, a few of his movies have animal titles. Not exactly about animals. Yeah, we sort of decided, well, are we doing movies about just animals? Or <laughs> are we doing the Airbud movies? <laughs> and Roar. And Roar. Uh, we should talk about that briefly, that Jason has now seen Roar. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now we could do a whole other show after Jason saw. <laughs> well, he was still excited about it today. Yeah. I'm still excited about it. It's hard not to be. <laughs> you think you're going to, I was telling Ryan, you think you're going to tire of it? Like, just this, it's going to be yeah. an hour and a half of, like, big giant cats, and you're just going to kind of get tired, and you just don't. Yeah. Like, you continually just sit with your mouth agape and yeah. kind of watch this unfold in front of your eyes. Well, I remember when we did it, and we probably talked about this before, but at intermission, I was like, okay, so it's probably, I mean, we arbitrarily pick the intermission time, so who knows, but I assumed, okay, so the first half was that, maybe the second half will be a little different, but no. Just as a preface, this with roars like this 1981 kind of, you know, super expensive <laughs> A uh, film that featured about 150 wild big cats yep. um, and <laughs> interacting with people. So, so uh, ambitious. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> like one of the most ambitious films I've ever seen and easily the most dangerous film I've yes. ever seen. Uh, poor, uh, apparently 70 people uh, from cast and crew were injured during the filming of, the, uh, of Roar, which took place over several years. Um, not the least of which was Tippi Hedren uh, and her daughter Melanie Griffith in real life uh, both sus sustained <laughs> massive injuries <laughs> uh, Melanie Griffith had to have plastic <laughs> surgery I mean like real stuff you know well I like that that becomes the appeal of the film because I bet on other merits it didn't really and so much of that audience. stuff like makes it into the movie you know uh, you know these like Melanie Griffith gets her head pinned down by a big cat, and it's all on film. Um, they had to use their real names. Yeah. So that they could, <laughs> the just, no, the actors are, they're, it's their real names in the movie. And I think Melanie was, Griffith's Melanie, and, you know, I mean, like, so that they could communicate just in, in these <laughs> moments of actual danger. Like, Melanie! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, getting confused. Anyways. No, it was uh, fantastic. So that was a big highlight of the month, but. That's pretty much the highlight. The highlight of the month. Although, this Yargos Lanthimos stuff, 
Yeah, this. Um, well, it, what films did you show? So we did. We went kind of in a chronological order of yeah. the animal named ones: yeah. Dogtooth, the lobster, and then in two days we're showing Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yes. Is that already sold out? That is sold out. Sorry. Yeah. To whoever. Yeah, and it'll probably already have shown by the time you hear this. Yeah. Uh, but he he is a if if anyone out there is not familiar with his movies or style, I recommend seeing them. Um, we're probably going to spoil parts of the movies, not the favorite. Yeah, there's like preface <laughs> preface this whole podcast with there are probably going to be spoiler alerts uh, throughout. Um, but yeah, I think great place to start is Dogtooth. Yeah, and yeah. that that was kind of his breakout. Yeah, right? for sure. It uh, you know received a lot of acclaim and kind of got him on the path to bigger, more you know um, bigger American films. Like brought him to America to make films. Sure. So I I kind of wanted to go over the the characteristics of his movies because sure. if if you have seen them, they're they're completely their own. Right. No, I, I mean, he's he's in with a handful of directors that, you know, truly there's his style of storytelling is unlike anyone else's mm-hmm. um, completely original, regardless of the film or, or whatever, um, you know, whatever you happen to sit down and view, it's going to be something you've never expected. Yeah, I, I think he's about as out there as any of the directors right now who's really landing it he's really making like a weird concept and uh you know like i guess we brought up david lynch while talking for a second about you know kind of weird directors but and that works you know clearly people like david lynch but right now i feel like well i think uh, kind of look at him like david lynch and i'm not taking anything away from david lynch's later stuff i think it's fantastic as well in its own right but like his earlier stuff like you know, you could compare Dog Tooth with Eraser. Right, yeah, yeah, and and kind of move forward from there with you know um, his other big films in the in the mid to late eighties like Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart, things uh-huh. like that uh, that were just kind of at the crux of his superpowers as a director. Yeah, he's um, on a roll. Yeah, I mean, and just... and Lanth is the same way right now. Is like these four films are just crushing it every time out. You know, definitely. Uh, I mean, as we're seeing with the favorite being nominated for. 10 Oscars this yeah. year, um, which, is, which is interesting. So he's, he's doing interesting, kind of weird stuff, but still making it work enough that it's nominated for Best Picture, etc. One of the most distinct things to me is the dialogue style. Mm. Um, Definitely has its own language, yeah. Yeah, and it's just in unbearably monotone. Yeah, it's <laughs> completely void of emotion. Uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, he's kind of known for this like completely monotone kind of staccato delivery of lines, and I thought it was pretty much, I'd never seen anything like it, but I watched Piero LeFou recently, and I oh, noticed nice, yeah. that uh, that Belmondo and uh, Karina are, are pretty much talking that same, that same style. No, that's a good, that's a good uh, I mean, correlation. And that's a pretty out there movie, too. Oh, for sure. <laughs> My favorite um, Godard film. So, uh, do we have a clip? I, I found this clip of he, him talking about how he tries to direct people on dialogue, and it's not exactly how I would have imagined. Um, and then I should probably try to find some clips of people actually talking, but <laughs> I don't. No experience to draw from. 
I definitely don't strive for realism because I don't believe in it and I don't believe in it, it exists <laughs> in, in cinema. Uh, you know, it, it's, all of it is a construction, so it's just there are different approaches. I just encourage the actors to not overthink about things and not put too many things in their heads about their motives and what they're why they're doing certain things and how they're saying certain lines because I just find that that makes them much more self-conscious and then their intention becomes very obvious and I think that's not true in real life. Your son told me he <laughs> yeah. yeah, what do you make Ooh, of that? That was heady. I mean, yeah, well, so uh, you know, I listened to this interview with Colin Farrell talking about the same thing and you know, obviously he's worked with him a few times so he's aware of uh, this dialogue manner, which is kind of, you know, they'll talk about really mundane things. Uh, you know, I think there's a line in Sacred Deer where they're just talking about this watch that's being exchanged. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's a great watch. Yeah, it works well at 40 meters below the water. Right. That's interesting. I always wanted to watch it went more than 15 meters below the... <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's like, what are you guys talking about? What's the point of this? Um, and Colin Farrell talked about how he didn't want to have context or too much backstory for any character that in his experience there's no you're just taking everything right as you as you hear it right as you come across it and you don't want to know too much about it which i think is kind of fun because you're trying to put it together like well i think it does that i think it also i mean and he kind of touched on it in the little interview piece we just listened to but it it, cinema is a visual art form Mm -hmm. first and foremost and i think by setting up a writing the way he writes and, and encouraging the actors to deliver the lines the way he delivers them or the way they deliver them um, kind of forces you to really look at what you're, what's on the screen. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not kind of falling in line with these characters. You never quite settle down, you know, uh-huh. as, a, as a viewer. You're constantly wondering what's going to happen next. And part of that is because it's not being delivered in a way that um, allows you to be comfortable at any yeah. point in time. You don't fall into any sort of rhythm, or, or particularly familiar. Like you're not exactly familiar with why they're saying whatever they're saying, sure. or how they're delivering it. So that I think works in a really interesting way. That one, it'll disarm you for some really good comedic lines, right? Because you're like, what? What is the motivation for this? And it's something you know. Is this sarcastic? Is it not? So it leaves a real dry sense of humor in it. But also in something like Sacred Deer, or really any of them, it'll also make you creeped out. Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes you kind of terrified. Like, in Sacred Deer, there's not a lot of, like, jump-out scary stuff, but that'll make your skin crawl in it. Oh, without a doubt. And yeah. the dialogue really does that in that. Um, y- you know, uh, I was going to play this later. Eh, no, we'll talk about uh, Sacred Deer in a minute. I want to play it. Do you guys... No, the spaghetti scene. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I'll play. We'll play some of that later, just because it gives you an idea of like how damn creepy and how little you can understand about the characters. Um, another thing I liked a lot about his movies are obviously the cinematography. Does anyone know the cinematographer? Um, Does he use the same? No, not always. Okay. Uh, a different cinematographer for the favorite. Um, uh, trying to remember who it was. Um, 
But he uses a lot of like slow zooms and really. Robbie Ryan was the guy he used for the favorite. Okay. Uh, he did like American Honey and Fish Tank and some okay. of these other films. You know, smaller one. independent films, but. The favorite actually has like its own odd cinematography that I like a lot. Yeah, no, it was definitely kind of a, a little different. While you still had the kind of staccato line delivery and all those things were all kind of through lines with everything that he does. The some of the look and and shot selection and uh, the favorite definitely was a departure from some of the other mm-hmm. films. The other three films we're kind of talking about today. Yeah, the other three are all the same person. The ones that we okay. showed are Thymios uh, another who is a Greek, Greek cinematographer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and those three that we showed all feel more together. They feel a, related, yeah. Yeah. Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer even more so. I, was, I, th- yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 They're almost, I, yeah I feel like they're very similar. One is funnier than the other. Sure, the yeah. One <laughs> tended to be One's more funny. of a thriller. Yeah. yeah, but they both have like those really slowly zooming shots all the time, or or they'll have a real wide pan shot that's just the people are in the distance. Yeah, he, he loves a good wide shot and allows everything to just kind of happen in front of the camera a lot of times. I, I feel like his editing style... Um, is part of what makes all of this happen. Obviously, the, the cinematography we're discussing, you know, you can't edit what you don't shoot. Um, but it allows for this editing style to just kind of, like you said, um, pace, uh, create a pace, a tempo um, that kind of puts you on the edge of your seat. Uh-huh. And there's not really anything crazy happening, you know, but it's just building and building and building throughout the throughout the film and you just never really relax you can't get comfortable well and that leads to another feature of his of or characteristic of his films uh is that reality isn't i guess we heard him say he doesn't go for realism yeah he doesn't believe it doesn't believe it exists in film anyway so why even attempt it yeah so he like he plays off of it so in such a precarious manner you know something is slightly different about the world in each of these right um than our world Uh, for instance in the lobster big spoiler uh you have 45 days to be matched with someone and start a successful relationship otherwise you get turned into whatever animal of your choosing yeah and just never explained at all yeah no i mean he just throws you into these realities and you just kind of have to go with it Right. Uh, I think the lobster is probably above and beyond, <laughs> like the the most extreme example of these. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> although Dogtooth is is amazing, you know, you're well into the movie before you start kind of piecing together what's really happening. Uh, that could almost be level. a real our current world, though. That one, the reality is more shaped by the information given by the parents, right? I, f- I feel like, but it's still some odd reality. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, I was uh, yeah, I was just watching an interview with him talking about well, coming back to the idea of dialogue too. Uh, he talked. It was when he met Colin Farrell on Skype, and apparently Colin Farrell said that he only said like a whole of seven words for an hour of them being on <laughs> Skype. The yoga said, yeah, yeah, and he was like, no, I don't know if that's true. He was like, but you know, we just, you know, I needed to feel him out, and you know, whatever. Um, but. Shit, what were you talking about? The lobster? Reality. Real and reality. 
Damn, there was another point. You could become a lobster. You can become. Oh, he didn't know. He was talking about when they were working on, uh, when they were writing it, that the idea of, you know, they were trying to come up with a severe punishment, you know, and they're like, oh, do we kill these people? Do we murder them? Oh, right. and so, you know, and he didn't, in that interview, he didn't exactly explain how they came to the idea of turning them into an animal, but it's just interesting that the idea, I mean, I could see for them, like, they have this idea of, they figured out the thing about, you know, if you don't find a partner, you're done. Something bad happens. Something bad yeah. happens. But then, I mean, that movie could, I, I imagine that that was how the movie then became a comedy, maybe, is that they decided, okay, yeah, you turn them into an animal. And then they're like, okay, so we can sort of play on this being somewhat funny also, right. as opposed to it taking a complete dog tooth path where it's like, this is just, yeah, just dark. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. But you know, I, I heard him do a little talk about Sacred Deer, and it's kind of the same way. He has this really, he gets the big picture first and then kind of lands on details. And he talked about riffing on Sacred Deer with his friends. He's like, well, so there's a myth of a Sacred Deer, like Agamemnon hunts a deer that Artemis likes. And yeah, can we give just a quick reference of what? Killing of a Sacred Deer is about in general terms. Well, so I'll, I'll try to explain it the way he comes about it. He's like, okay, so we, ha- we want to use this allegory of this myth uh, where something's been taken away and then there's a punishment from the person who had something taken away to the person who took it. And then he was like, well, okay, uh, a doctor, that's a situation where death is, you can't really blame anyone, but right. it's a, a situation where you could have someone's life in your hands. So... Colin Farrell, the doctor, doesn't perform. One of his patients doesn't survive after a car accident, right? Yes, Um, yes, exactly. And his son, Martin, the son of the now deceased person, uh, they start a relationship. Am I? No, you're good. Yeah, Yeah, so Colin Farrell, uh, feeling guilt for one of his patients not surviving goes to the funeral and kind of befriends this, this teenage boy. Um, and then the teenage boy um, explains that he's, Colin Farrell has to choose one of his family members, his wife, his son, or his daughter, to kill. Otherwise, all three of them will die. And he never really explains like how he has no. this power to do this. Right. He just kind of puts it out there, and yeah. you start seeing the reality of what he's proposed start coming to fruition <laughs> to the yeah. point that Colin Farrell, you know, his character, Dr. Larry, ben, or what is it? Um, Stephen Murphy. Okay. Uh, starts like having to buy into the story that this kid's put forth, that there is like a reality that he's creating. Um, yeah. That he's going to have to go along with and, on some level. Oh, and it's just, and he tries to skirt it every way he can. He's trying to get work around it, work around mm-hmm. it, work around it. And, you know, is forced into a very precarious position by the end of the film. It's know? interesting how he uses the how he uses exclusion as a as a or the the power of exclusion in his movies that actually makes them more interesting. So in the lobster, we don't really know why you turn into yeah. an animal, right. but that's sort of the crux of the whole movie. And then in Killing of a Sacred Deer, you've got this kid, like you said, that has these powers, and you don't know why he has these powers, but that makes you want to keep watching and. Like, even though you don't have these major pieces, they somehow, the exclusion of them makes them much more engaging. Right. It allows your own, your imagination to run wild. I think that's any time. Yeah. And I think that's where you get 
you know, the connection to, in my mind to guys like David Lynch yeah. or Fellini or, uh-huh. you know, there's a handful of guys who are just, you know, we're putting out kind of a big idea and we're not going to really let you know where this came from. We're just putting you in this world and you're going to have to figure it out as we go along. We'll give you some, mm-hmm. some things to grab onto, but a lot of this you're going to have to make up in your own yeah. head. And, try to keep up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And try to keep up. And I think allowing you to do that uh, as a filmmaker, you know, you just end up with these when it works and, and when you're great at it, like these guys are, um, it just, it creates a world unlike anything else and, and you can't help but get sucked into it. But there's something I, I would say he's even, there's something about the way that the characters interact in his movies that make like his comparing him to Lynch, for instance, mm-hmm. like, I watch Lynch movies and I'm like, I, what, what did I just watch? Yeah. You know, like, and sometimes there are things that don't make sense, but that make you think about things in a certain way that you wouldn't otherwise. But I think what I like about his movie so much is that they're, they're somehow also so cohesive and no, even with, with like one major thing, not making sense, it doesn't matter because everything else is just so tight. And like, I don't know. I think that's very interesting. Well, I think he's, I really think he has like this materialist approach to to like for instance the world is surreal whether it be physics like how the hell do you turn into an animal uh, how does someone uh, you know start causing retribution on a family by making their eyes bleed etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. like these aren't real things the world's often surreal that way like either physics are defied or um, something about the human the set of rules society follows for instance the lobster like what are dating norms what are are uh the conditions that make people uh, attracted to each other or work together like he lets those certain rules happen or these certain surrealities happen but then he puts real people in them despite however they talk i mean that's kind of odd but otherwise it's like okay how would a person navigate this world or in dogtooth how does uh the 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 older daughter how does she navigate that she's stuck in this world and she can't leave until her dog teeth are out? She knocked her teeth out. You yeah. know, like they, they do find a real way. The humans are real right. in, in the stories. So yeah. I think that's different than David Lynch. David Lynch, he creates these really odd characters that don't necessarily seem grounded into the material existence they're having, whereas yeah. Yorgos really do. Yeah. Like if you are supposed to have the same uh, conditions that, that your partner has, such as in the lobster, right. like the one woman's nose bleeds. The guy's like, okay, I'll just make my nose bleed. Right. <laughs> that way we, that way we were compatible. <laughs> no, um, that's a fair point. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Uh, the other thing I think is a huge feature of his movies, including up to the favorite is power, right? Power dynamics. And often he uses sex and violence as like a, a tool or representation of a bigger picture of power. Like who's holding the power? Well, I think, yeah, that, and just kind of, he uses very basic, um, pillars that we look at for, for power, like in dog tooth, it's the father, uh-huh. you know, these yeah. kind of, um, you know, killing of a sacred deer. It's Colin Farrell. Ideally you start thinking and then it and then flips it's on not. its ear. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. turns on its ear. Uh, to a child, which is what makes it so fascinating. Um, but in the favorite, obviously, it's the queen, and then you realize the same thing. These kind of people who shouldn't be in that level of power are actually the ones running things. So there's always kind of this um, 
theme of like going to set you up in a very concrete way with these you know uh, pillars of of wisdom or or authority and we're going to examine that and in some cases really just completely flip it yeah i don't want to talk about the favorite too much because everyone should go see it except for oscars david hasn't seen it but in the favorite i mean i need to watch it again to find out who's who's in power on this i mean it really yeah no plays you and i have had this conversation so well. before you know um the more you talk about it, that's always an earmark of a great film. Like you're, you see it and a month later, you can still have a conversation with somebody else who's seen it and kind of pick up new things or learn new things about the film that maybe you missed or, or how you looked at it. Uh, I think that's a kind of another earmark of kind of great filmmaking when it's, when it's done in this semi surreal way. Um, that you know it allows for interpretation and for other people to have you know varying opinions mm-hmm. on this um and he does a great job of kind of providing surrealism in a very natural way that is not alienating you know i mean yeah. the the favorite's a very approachable film you know you oh, can definitely watch it beginning to you know beginning to end and not feel like you're out of this world or, yeah, or yeah. don't understand what's going on it's very you know um watchable yeah and if you're not trying to analyze like severe power dynamics or intricate things you can also just enjoy like a beautiful period piece with with witty dialogue and yeah a lot of humor yeah you know there's there's a a ton to grab out of any of these and there's more if you want it in in, in each of them i mean dog tooth you're pretty much you're in it for what what's there yeah that one's probably a little less accessible than the others yeah, I agree. I mean, I haven't seen it in ages, like, since it came out. But, I mean, like, it's one of those films you saw it and you almost don't need to see it again for 20 <laughs> years because it just leaves such an indelible impression on your brain. Um, yeah, but your re- mouth is probably agape for most of that, where you're just like, what? Yeah, what has happened? <laughs> like, the whole time. Um, in the most engaging way, though. Totally. Not, not, yeah, in, yeah. Yeah. not in an alienating nope. way. Like, you are sucked in. Yep. Uh, I also like, um, now that I've seen a handful of his movies and he's been on a roll, I like seeing directors put their team together, you know, yeah, see who, yeah. who they keep working with, um, you know, kind of how we got Wes Anderson's got Bill Murray and everything, uh, you know, or P.T. Anderson has his crew, et cetera, et cetera. He's got a, a, a good a good cast that he's been working with. Yeah, I mean, Colin Farrell's been in a couple of his films. Olivia Coleman's been in a couple of his films. Rachel Weisz. Rachel Weiss has been in a couple of his films. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, you're going to... The oldest daughter, too, in Dogtooth. Uh, oh. Um, she's the mean one in The Lobster. Right. Yeah, uh, God, what's oh, her name? Ange- Angeliki Papalia. Angeliki yeah, Papalia. Yeah. yeah. We butchered we it. Probably got that it. way wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're all just ignoring. You're just no. You're just for the most. Don't ever listen. But he's also worked with a few people, just like kind of a one-off that I really hope he works with again. Like John uh, Emma C. Stone Riley. being one. John C. Riley. John C. Riley. Definitely. John C. Riley is like tailor made for this. This <sighs> kind John C. of Riley is so funny. He is so good in the <laughs> lobster. Just do a show about John C. Riley. <laughs> yeah. Really. Let's all go watch the Holmes and Watson. <laughs> I'm kidding. Let's, yeah. let's not do that. Yeah. But yeah, John C. Riley trying. He does do. Everyone does the the acting style really well, and still adds something of themselves so, to it. 
So to me, John C. Riley makes complete sense for like a movie like The Lobster because, mm-hmm. I mean, he's been doing Tim and Eric forever, and that is some <laughs> you know, like they're different, and yeah. but it's some absurdist yeah. shit where totally. it's like you get to just kind of be some weird unexplainable sort of you know or maybe off-putting at first uh-huh. and confusing character or whatever and like i don't yeah <laughs> yeah i don't think that that was probably that hard for him to start to say there's certain whiffs of that in the lobster on. in his yeah. performance of yeah. the lobster where he you know he just he kind of makes these he's his character is fantastic and in, in the sense that he just kind of makes these statements mm-hmm. <laughs> just, you can see everyone around him just suddenly they're a little off kilter a little uncomfortable by what he's saying um i'm, I'm struggling to think of something you know, well, there's one where the uh the one character asks him if he's ever danced with anyone That's what I was but yeah we'll throw it later and he's like uh yeah <laughs> he's like well what kind of dance do you do he's like it depends on the music <laughs> like <laughs> So, but it's like these quick little lines that, yeah, he nails that style very well. Nicole Kidman, also in Sacred Deer, I'd love to see her worked with again. Uh, that Martin kid, uh, what, um, Barry Keegan. Barry Keegan, yeah. That kid, put him in everything. Yeah, <laughs> just fantastic, perfectly creepy in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in a, a, one of my favorite films from last year, American Animals, and just crushes it in a very different way apparently he's in dunkirk which is yeah right but i'm he sure is he's in good dunkirk, in yeah um i barely remember from that but yeah he is in dunkirk. i'm just dunkirk. imagining that he only acts the way because i've only seen him in sacred deer right <laughs> no no he's totally different obviously um but I, actually can you, jack can you play that uh nicole kidman uh the spaghetti scene from killing of a sacred deer with Barry keegan if my husband made a mistake, if out of negligence or I don't know what, he caused this tragic thing to happen. I don't understand why I should have to pay the price, why my children should have to pay the price. You know, not long after my dad died, someone told me that I ate spaghetti the exact same way he did. <laughs> they said, um, what an extraordinary impression this fact had made on them. Look at the boy. Look how he eats spaghetti. He's exactly uh, twirling spaghetti same way his father for did. context. He sticks his fork in. He twirls it around and around and around and around and around. Oh, that sound. I know. Oh, it's so good. It in his mouth. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, let it keep going. <laughs> he ends this. I thought I was the only one who ate spaghetti that way. Maybe my dad... Later, of course, I found out that everyone eats spaghetti the exact same way. Exact same way. Exact same way. He's got, like, sauce all over his lips, too. This made me very upset. Very upset. Maybe even, um, more upset than when they told me he was dead. (laughs) My dad. Here it is. I don't know if what is happening is fair, but it's the the only thing I can think of as close to justice. It's <laughs> terrifying. What a Oof. terrifying kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to see the way he eats spaghetti in this scene, too. Yeah. He just takes, like, the biggest forkful. Yeah. 
that you can possibly muster up, and it's a disgusting mess. Well, it's great. The scene opens, and you know we're talking about cinema on, on the radio, so bear with us. But um, you know the scene opens, and it's a long take of an extreme close up of Nicole Kidman just watching this happen in front yeah. of her. Like she she's a little you know more than taken aback by what's happening and then it, it cuts immediately from her to an extreme close up of the spaghetti and getting <laughs> yeah. that twirling and all you know you realize oh this is what she's having to sit here and look at and just that slow push in on Barry Keegan as he's kind of delivering his message you know just the creep factor just goes to an 11 real quickly. Yeah. You know? Well, and you don't need a lot of context for it, but you understand that he's displaying how much power he has. Oh, no, it's thing. an absolute power play. He's I letting mean, everyone know. Yeah. And, and in those no uncertain terms, you know, says it at the end. And you know, I don't know if this is, you know, what does he say? I don't know if this is. Uh, is uh, yeah, I don't know if this is the best or, way. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if this is the best way, but it's the way it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like it's, you know, it's almost like this, uh, you know, you, you think of uh, the, the murderer in No Country for Old Men, how right. he just, he's got to follow this certain set of rules that he's subscribed to. And you, you realize, like, kind of Barry or Martin and oh, that's a great connection, yeah. has already made his decision, and it's kind of beyond him. It's not really for him to be pleaded with or anything. Yeah, it, he's checking boxes at this point. Yeah, you know, it's not it's even like, that he wants to do this. Right. It's just that this, this is, is what's going to happen. Then <laughs> he's accepted it and, and therefore, you know, has all the power because he's the one who's accepted it. Yeah. Everybody else is fighting against it, and he's just the one that knows this is how it's going to go. <laughs> Jesus. Can we go back to the the John C. Riley? Yeah. Uh, can we play that clip, the one that says uh, uh, it says lobster dance? Oh, you put it on too. Someone did. Yeah, I did. This is <laughs> well, this is Olivia Coleman and her partner right. in the movie doing a duet for everyone. <laughs> Have you ever danced with anybody? Sorry? Have you ever danced with anybody? Yes. <laughs> what sort of dancing did you do? Just depends on the music. <laughs> do you need to sit down? No, no, no. I'm getting ready to dance. Oh. <laughs> Can I sit here? Uh. That anyway. complete speech impediment too. Like he just has that yeah. inflection of you know a speech impediment. That's perfect. It's yeah. really good. Well, yeah, and that's kind of his. Uh, so uh, another one. If you haven't seen the lobster, everyone who si- they sign up for this kind of a retreat. I guess it's kind of like a uh, a camp for adults who need to find a match. Right. And everyone had. Everyone's got kind of some. Um, not not a defining quality a defining quality that's yeah. what they call it yeah. in the movie yeah yeah and his defining quality is that he has a lisp yeah right yeah yeah there's another guy that has one limp leg right or yeah yeah who then finds someone who has a nose bleed and then starts banging his head everywhere to well and th- so for me when i saw the lobster i thought that this okay this camp is trying to pair people up with uh, people who have the same defining characteristic, de- defining uh, whatever it is. Yeah, and defining characteristics. Okay. Um, but then you... Quality. Yeah, defining quality. But then you notice as 
Colin Farrell escapes and joins a renegade group of celibates or, or people on their own, loners, I think right. they're called. Um, there's still this desire just in the world. Like, that wasn't just set up from the camp. Like, everyone's trying to pair up with someone who has the same eyesight as them. or the, Yeah, some some defining quality that, that matches, yeah. Um, to that, to uh, such an extreme that when... Uh, <laughs> So they're both nearsighted, right? Uh, Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz. Yeah. Is that what it is? Short-sighted, nearsighted? Yeah, we're nearsighted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then she becomes blinded, and then there's this scene where he's kind of slowly... Ex- Colin Farrell is accepting that, but then he starts asking her all these random questions about... He's like, so, like, do you play the piano? Cause he, yeah. Because he right. plays the piano, and he's like, what is our thing? What else do we have? <laughs> if right. we don't have the nearsighted thing. And, like, starts... F- fighting this other guy he's like are you nearsighted yeah because some other yeah anyways well then yeah and then this culminates to like a a, quite a quite an ending yeah quite an ending (laughs) but so so the lobster um i guess my takeaway from the lobster is that um you know what social or relationship rules or cliches do we take for granted in like our version of reality like what do we choose to value? What what uh, personal traits or unique uh, qualities about each other do, do we look for in a partner and uh, just assume that that's how that's supposed to be? Like, I feel like it's presenting pretty... You're like, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? But then, like, how many ridiculous things do we do? I think it makes it a good parallel. Yeah, no, I think he takes it to, like, a very obvious extreme, but it's based in some reality. You know, of just human nature. Yeah, you know? yeah. We, we, for some reason, we need to categorize certain things and have decided that certain things are compatible. Like, um, I mean, income are, are, are easy ones. Like, are you guys of relatively the same um, upbringings or income levels? You know, these are qualities that we often see uh, in our life that are like, oh, these make for good matches or complementary features. Uh, but then this is like, yeah you both need to have uh, a crooked walk or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, and even like in a very basic example in real life, some, you know, fitness and things like that. Somebody who's crazy, you know, physically fit typically isn't with someone who's not. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They're typically looking for somebody who's, you know, matching them uh, in that interest or or in that kind of defining quality, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess you can use the, the, what you learn from the lobster is like analyze these things. Like, okay, why? Why do we do this? Maybe there's a good reason. Maybe there isn't. Right. Which animals would you guys choose? Ooh. Oh, damn. Ooh. Jack, throwing it throw in. this at you too. Yeah, I didn't think about this. I don't know. Dogs have pretty good lives, generally speaking. Okay. There's a line about dogs, though, in the movie that they're like, you don't want to be a dog, you idiot. Like, right. <laughs> the whole well, dog thing is. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> when they, I like how they use little things to how they just looking out the window. Colin Farrell just sees uh, a pony, you know, out right. there, and you're yeah. you're just like, well, someone wanted to be a pony. You don't need to know anything about that person. <laughs> like, right. okay. Well, and so. when he leaves, like, and they're in the woods, and you got like, there's like a peacock that's suddenly walking by, and you're like, <laughs> all right, that's not supposed to. Be. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Who <laughs> picked that? Um, and I like his reasoning for the lobster is that they live to be like 150 years old. They're blue blooded. Uh, they're blue blooded. Uh, they often find mates and mate for life. Yeah, <laughs> just all right. Well, and they live in the ocean, and he loves the ocean. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that's a good question. Damn. I don't know. I mean, yeah, cats and dogs do get waited on by people, and that's like a pretty, and that, that's what I want more than anything is yeah. for people to. It's pretty sweet. I'd probably be one of, one of the many cats and roar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what we should. Which animal in a movie that we've shown this month would you be? I think I'd want to be Zazu from uh, from Lion King. From Lion King. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Jack, do you have a spirit animal? You know, I, I don't. I, I, I've never been able to answer that question. A cat? I don't know. Man, you're not ready for the dystopian future of the lobster. <laughs> I'm really not. When Emperor Yorgos takes over. <laughs> I would probably be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's the best. Pizza, yeah. skateboarding. <laughs> awesome karate skills. Karate. <laughs> Ninja stuff. <laughs> Sewer life. <laughs> being, being a vigilante. Yeah. Uh, Pretty strong. All right. What else? What, what other what are, what are the key? What other unique features of your ghost do we got? Or are we pretty done talking about him? I don't know. I mean, I feel like we've kind of covered. He's quite the... We get it. Yeah, he's quite the... Have we ever talked about, like, the auteur theory on on this podcast? We should. Go on. Uh, I'm just going to read real quick the auteur theory. It's um, the theory of filmmaking in which the director is viewed as the major creative force in a motion picture. Uh, arising in France in the late 40s, the auteur theory, as it was dubbed by the American critic Andrew Serres, was an outgrowth of the cinematic theories of uh, André Bazin and Alexandre Ostrock, a foundation stone of, this, of the French cinematic movement known as the New Wave Nouvelle Vague. Uh, the theory of director as author was principally advanced in um, the periodical Cashiers du Cinéma. Two of its uh, theoreticians, Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard, later became major directors of the French New Wave. The auteur theory, which was derived largely from a strict elucidation of the concept of camera stylo, camera pen, holds that the director, who oversees all the audio and visual elements of the motion picture, is more to be considered the author of the movie than is the writer of the screenplay. In other, mm-hmm. wo- in other words, such fundamental visual elements as camera placement, blocking, lighting, and scene length, rather than plot line, convey the message of the film. Supporters of the auteur theory further contend that the most cinematically successful films will bear the unmistakable personal stamp of the director, which I think would be very accurate about yeah. Yorgos. Yeah, definitely. And... I mean, oh no, he's absolutely an auteur. I mean, yeah. by that definition, he, he is. And one of the know. yeah, one of the best right yeah. now, I would say. Yeah, you know, but it's funny because you well, since it's in the Oscar season, we were saying maybe the the best contender to the favorite. Please God, don't be whatever Bohemian Rhapsody. But oh man, I guess quality of movies for me and for a lot of us probably Roma, Roma. and yeah. the yeah. favorite. Um, yeah. And not so much with Roma, although it is like pretty autobiographical, it seems. Um, but with other movies he's made, you do get that sense that he's like really telling a specific story. You're coming from the director. Well, even like what we were talking about, the way in which he, you know, the control that he wants to have on the actors as far as what they're actually like, don't bring any extra stuff in mm-hmm. here. This is how it like he's more of a, a puppeteer in a, in a way. Yorgos, you're talking. Yeah, about. Yorgos. You know, it's funny though, because uh, I think that's true. But Colin Farrell, in one of the interviews I saw talking about him, he's like, you know, he's very economic about how he directs. It's very little direction. It's just uh, maybe a little slower, maybe a little faster. Here, let's maybe, you know, maybe do that faster. Bury a little faster. Okay. But, it, but, but he does try to clear them, from what I can gather. Like, 
be a little void of trying to understand your backstory too much. Yeah. Just do the scene. Right? Yeah. But well, then, I think you're, I mean, going back to kind of the, the crux of the auteur theory is everything visual and audio, uh, audible that, you know, basically everything you're sitting down to experience is coming from one vision. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's yeah. where he falls. I mean, you can, yeah, Definitely. the, the idea, you know, I mean, like a lot of uh, guys like Mike Lee, Cassavetes to some degree did, you know, uh, and Scorsese does it a lot as well. You know, they work with actors, you know, beyond the script. Sure. Um, you know, let them improvise and do all totally. those things and, and really have a, a major part. But, you know, Sidney, Sidney Lamette has a, had a great line uh, when he was talking about filmmaking. He was like, the key is everybody's making the same movie. And that's incumbent upon a great director or any director who knows what he's doing to be able to articulate that to everybody from you know sound designers to you know costumers to the actors themselves you know everybody has to be making the same movie at the Uh, end of the day oh yeah and like that yeah i think any great director you know whether it's orson welles or um you know like i said scorsese or any of these guys that you know the the French New Wave, Godard, and you know Boonwell, and all of these Fairly guys. Brothers, uh, Fairly Brothers. <laughs> you know, the key is that you're making you know their movie. The Coen Brothers are a great example. Yeah. yeah, they don't they create these insane screenplays that nobody really detracts from because the writing's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, or takes you know takes liberty with because the writing's so strong. But ultimately, I mean, they're in control of that thing mm-hmm. from yeah the first time they punch a key to start the screenplay until the final edit's done. You yeah. Know? Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Lothamos is indeed yeah. an auteur. Yeah. So, uh, let's pour one out for the auteurs. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen The Favorite, go see it. I'm looking at David. I will. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, it's still my favorite for Best Picture. Yeah, no, I think it's my favorite as well. Uh, although I did Is like it your Roma. Favorite of his? You know, I, I've kind of felt that he's improved with yeah, each. I think it might be my favorite movie. Um, but while we're talking about them, and as I've watched them, it is, it's whichever one I've just watched. Yeah, I think no, is I my think there's, there's a lot of that. Yeah, but um, it, it's, I don't know how he'll top it. I, I do not know how he'll, how he'll top the favorite. It, it hits on every level. Yeah, it's more of a master. Uh, upon thinking about it, I think it's more of a masterpiece than I thought. Yeah, just doesn't make the bar high. Did you all see Happy as Lazaro? No, but that's on my list of. This is really good. Yeah, which is this? It's um, an Italian film, uh, I believe, also distributed by Netflix. But, uh, uh, oh, it was. Yeah, um, I just read a thing about this in New York Magazine. March. Yeah, really worth seeing. That was good. I think that I think that's on our list for March, potentially. Well, that comes after February, which comes. Which after February. comes we'll talk about it next week. Yeah, we'll talk about February next week. All right, because it'll be February. Yeah. Well, should we just play uh, something that's got a hold of my heart again and uh, play us out? Live? All right. All right. Here it goes. Thanks, Jack. Thanks.